Well, if you're just joining us this week, we are in the third and final part of a series that we're calling Watermark. We have been talking about what the Bible teaches us about baptism. And if you have been a part of uh, any Christian denomination or heritage at all, you, you may be familiar with baptism. Uh, but there may be differences in the timing of baptism or in the way people are baptized. Uh, but pretty much every Christian tradition practices baptism. If you are new to the Christian faith or just exploring it, it may be one of those rituals or routines that you've always wondered about but never heard anybody actually talk about. So for the past two weeks, and then this being the third week, we are looking, if you will, pardon the pun, beneath the surface uh, to look at what baptism really is about, what the Bible teaches about baptism. And to do that, we've used a pretty simple analogy, uh, the, the analogy of a watermark, which actually is something you probably all deal with or handle almost every day because all United States currency has a watermark on it. And a watermark is a mark that some paper has uh, that shows, first of all, its authenticity. It shows that it's real. It shows that your currency is real. And we said a couple weeks ago that baptism is a mark of what we really believe. That baptism itself is an outward expression of an inward faith and inward belief. A watermark is also a sign of quality. It's a sign of, of the, the paper that you have uh, being a higher quality than maybe any average run-of-the-mill paper. And we said that baptism is also a mark of what we are to become in Christ. That we are buried with Christ in death and we're raised to walk in a new life. Uh, the, sin, the life that was scarred by sin is no more. It's laid aside and instead we take up life in Christ. It's a fuller life, a more abundant life. And this week, I want to talk about one more aspect of a watermark. A watermark also is a branding. Companies use a watermark to show you their name or their logo. And baptism is also a sign of where we as believers belong. So baptism is a sign of what we believe. It's a sign of what we are to become. And it is a sign of where we belong Now, many of you may have heard of various kind of initiation rites throughout your life. And when I say initiation rites, you might think of watching uh, the travel channel or or some history channel with some ancient custom by some foreign culture. Uh, But we have initiation rites in the United States and in our culture just as well. Uh, Some of you may have participated when you were going to college and fraternities or sororities where there was rush. Others of you, uh, initiation rites might have involved an exam. If you're in the legal profession or a lawyer, you have to pass this little thing known as the bar. That's kind of an initiation into that. Many of us have been a part of initiation into married life, and we call that initiation rite a wedding. Now, you don't have to have a wedding to be married. You can simply go to the Justice of the Peace and sign a marriage license and, and be married. Uh, but I, and I know the majority of the men would prefer that, but there aren't many of us that get away with that because there's a woman that we're marrying who insists upon some rite of passage, some ceremony we call a, a wedding, and it initiates us into married life. Uh, another thing that happens, and it's particularly if, if you've been in Jacksonville for long, you know there's one of our judges who is in charge of adoptions. And you may have seen in the news from time to time, uh, this judge has a a beautiful ceremony in his courtroom as uh, children are adopted by their forever families. The Bible talks a lot about adoption, the New Testament in particular. But the Bible doesn't speak about adoption in the same way that you and I may understand adoption today. You see, adoption today is 
is often uh, when a family who uh, will choose to adopt a child, they choose to adopt an infant. They actually want to adopt the child as young as possible. They want to get a baby. But 2,000 years ago in biblical time, that was not the way adoption uh, was practiced. Uh, the, the value of children was greatly diminished from the way we view children today, primarily because the infant mortality rate was so high. Many people weren't sure if the child was going to live very long. Uh, adoption in the biblical time primarily centered around uh, the adoption of adults. And the way it worked was that there would be, uh, there would be a person, usually someone of pretty high reputation or, or an authority figure or someone of great wealth, who may not have an heir, or if they did have an heir, they had decided for whatever reason that heir wasn't qualified to receive their title or their power or their position, their resources. And so what that individual would do is they would identify an adult that they would adopt. And it was always a a male because this was a male-dominated culture and society at that time. So they would find maybe a servant in their home who had been a faithful servant, a servant who may have even been raised in that person's home their entire life and they were a faithful and trusted steward and so that adult would be adopted as a son to that wealthy individual and that wealthy individual's title and power and wealth would be transferred to that adopted person and so when the biblical writers are writing about adoption they don't have in mind adoption the way we think of it, of an infant. They, they're actually thinking of adoption as an adult male being adopted or brought into the family. Galatians chapter 3, the end of 3 and the beginning of 4, actually talks about this quite a bit. Paul tells us, those of us who are in faith in Christ Jesus, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters. That we're no longer slaves. Many of those who were adopted had been slaves in the home, but they became sons and daughters. So they're saying, you're no longer a slave, but you've been adopted as children of God. And here's where this becomes important for us as we discuss baptism. That baptism is a mark and celebration of belonging to the body of Christ. It's a mark. It's a ceremony It's a ritual, but it has so much more meaning than just simply the ritual of baptism. It's a celebration that you've been adopted. You are part of the family. Now, it's important as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 10, we're going to be looking at a story. I invite you to open there. Acts chapter 10. Uh, We'll be looking through that entire chapter for us to understand how radical this teaching really was. You see, Christianity began uh, among the Jewish people, and the Jewish people had become very, very isolated culturally. Uh, They they had, through their teaching and through time, had just sort of cloistered themselves away. Uh, They actually had a name for everybody who wasn't Jewish. They called them Gentiles. Didn't matter if you were Egyptian or Roman or Ethiopian. They, They just lumped everybody who wasn't Jewish into one category, and they called them Gentiles. And and there were very strict rules that they had separating Jews from Gentiles. Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. Jews didn't go into Gentile homes. Jews tried to keep uh, interaction with Gentiles to a bare minimum. And so when the church started, it started very much in this culture. All of Jesus' disciples uh, were Jewish And so as the church is beginning to grow, it's growing primarily among the Jews. But that was never God's plan from the beginning. We know in John chapter 3 verse 16, God said that he so loved the world. 
And we know that from the Old Testament, the writings tell us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. This has always been a part of the Jewish scriptures. But somehow along the line, the people of God began to isolate themselves off. They began to say, if you don't look like us, you can't be part of us. If you don't share our heritage, you can't be part of us. If you're not like us, you have no part of us. And then we come to Acts chapter 10. And we see what happens. Look with me at Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what we know, uh, what was known as the Italian cohort. So, so far, Cornelius has two strikes against him. First of all, he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And second, and maybe even worse, he was part of the Roman military machine who, was a, who had been oppressing the Jews for years. All the Jews wanted to be out from underneath the Roman Empire. So here this guy is. He's an official in the Roman Empire and he's a Gentile. But listen to what, listen to what Luke says about this man in the book of Acts chapter 10. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. This sounds like a really good man, doesn't it? Do you know, do you know, that there are non-Christians who are better people than many Christians are? Do you know that there are people in this world who don't share our faith in Christ, who pray more than we pray, who are more generous than we are generous, who do a better job of leading their households than we do of leading our households? I know we'd like to think otherwise, but there are faithful people who are not a part of the church. They do not profess faith in Christ, and yet They pray more, they give more, they're better to their families, they're better to their neighbors than many Christians are. That's this guy. That's that's Cornelius. So listen to what happened to him. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. This is the same guy we read about in the the Gospels. This was Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples, uh, the head of the disciples, Peter. Send, Send some guys and find Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now this is an extraordinary story. I think Acts chapter 10 may be one of the most important stories in the book of Acts for the church because it was such a pivotal moment in the life of the church. We have the story of this man, Cornelius. He was a good man. He was a very good man. Actually, he was so good that the scripture tells us God took notice of him. He noticed his generosity. He heard his prayers. I've heard people say, maybe you've heard it said, that God doesn't listen to the prayers of non-Christians. Next time someone tells you that, ask them to go read Acts chapter 10. Because God clearly listened to the prayers of Cornelius. And not only did he listen, he responded. He knew that Cornelius was a good man. God took notice of it. But it wasn't enough. Cornelius' goodness was not enough. God appeared and said, Cornelius... I see how good you are, but I need you to get some guys together. I need you to send them down to Joppa, and I want you to find this guy named Peter, and I want you to bring him back to your house. Now, meanwhile, God, who is 
who, who is orchestrating all things to work together for the good, God is also simultaneously working in the heart of Simon Peter. Simon Peter's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner, and it's getting close to dinner time, but dinner's not ready yet. It's not on the table, but Peter's pretty hungry. So he goes up on the roof, which was a place in this culture where people would, uh, would, would be during the day. They would kind of hang out up on the roof. So Peter went up on the roof, and he dozed off while he's waiting on dinner to be ready. While he's sleeping, he has this crazy dream. And in this dream, there descends to him a sheet. And in the sheet, there are all kinds of these things that Jews aren't supposed to eat. Now, the Jews had distinguished themselves from the rest of society in several ways. One of the ways is that all Jewish males at the age of eight days old were circumcised. They were physically marked apart, separate, as God's chosen people. But another way that good Jews would would distinguish themselves from the rest of culture and society is that they didn't eat the same things. There were things that they had been taught uh, that were unclean. And so as a way of separating themselves out from society, they they would abstain from eating things. Good things, things like bacon, lobster. I mean, these were all things that were unclean. So here this, this, this sheet's being descended, and it's just full of bacon and lobster. I mean, it's all kinds of these good things. And God says, Peter, you're hungry. You need to eat. Go ahead and eat this. And Peter's like, no way, I'm not eating that. I've never eaten anything unclean ever. Now, Peter's an adult. He's married. Um, he, he's, he's probably getting older. He has never once in his entire life eaten anything unclean. He says, God, I'm not going to start now. God says, Peter, I don't want you to call anything that I have made unclean. Now, there, some guys are coming. They're getting ready to knock on the door. And with, I don't want you to ask any questions. I just want you to go with them. You see, this vision was preparing Peter for something. And it wasn't just about dietary laws, although it certainly included that. It was about people. See, Peter, along with all of the other Jews of his days, or the majority of the Jews of his day, they didn't just think that certain foods were unclean. They looked at people and said they were unclean. You have no part of us. You're not a part because of your background, of who your parents were, of of the culture you come from, of the language you speak. You're you're not a part of us. You're separated from us. And God was using this illustration to say, Peter, don't call anything I've made unclean. Everything on earth is mine. I am the Lord of all, Peter. So sure enough, the guys show up at the door. They're knocking on the door. Is there somebody here named Peter? Peter? Simon, the tanner, says, yeah, there's a guy named Peter here. So, so Peter, without asking questions, God's already prepared him. He goes with these guys. And, and there's some other of the Jewish Christians from Simon's house go with Peter. And so they go to, uh, to Cornelius' house. And we pick up the story in Acts 10, verse 35. So they arrive at Cornelius' home. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. You see, Peter got the message, didn't he? Peter didn't know that before. He learned that on Simon's rooftop when God appeared to him. But Peter listened, and he knew something was different. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone, do you notice those two words? Every and anyone. Those are pretty inclusive words, aren't they? Every nation, Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. If you're here today and you're, you fear the Lord, 
and you're willing to do what's right according to the Lord, he says, you're welcomed in. Doesn't matter what color your skin is. Doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. Doesn't matter what language you speak, what your background is, who your daddy was. Doesn't matter even what you've done in the past. Every nation, any person is included. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And then look what it says. He is Lord of all. All. This was revolutionary for Peter. And it was certainly revolutionary for those early Christians. So Peter goes on and he preaches the gospel. He just tells Cornelius and everybody in the house, listen, it's sin that has separated us from God. It's sin that has created this chasm between us and God. But God sent his son Jesus to die, to pay the penalty for the sins of all the world. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, has, God himself has paid the penalty for your sins. And God raised Jesus from the dead to show that there is victory over sin in the grave. So Peter's preaching the gospel to Cornelius and to everybody in his house. And then he ends the sermon like this in verse 43. To him all the prophets bear witness that. Read these, read these blue words with me. Everyone who believes in him. Say it with me again. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. This is a revolutionary teaching. And Cornelius was a good man. He was generous. He led his household well. He was righteous. He sought to do right things. He spent time in prayer. But his goodness wasn't good enough. He needed to hear the message of the gospel. Because it wasn't about what Cornelius was doing. It's about what Jesus Christ had done. And so God said, I'm going to send Peter to you. To fill you in on what you don't know. Because you see, good people do not go to heaven. Forgiven people do. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. And Cornelius needed to hear that. His goodness was important. It was an offering to God, but it was not enough, and neither is yours. You can't be good enough. Your goodness may get God's attention, but God wants you to hear the gospel. And he will go to miraculous lengths to make sure you hear the gospel. And he sent, he sent Peter to Cornelius' home. Cornelius' good, work, good works didn't earn his forgiveness. His faith in Jesus Christ would. Listen to what happened next, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, now who's that? Those are the Jewish believers who came with Peter. Now, you've got to imagine, these guys, they, they followed Peter in. They're like, we're going to go where, Peter? Well, I don't know if we should go there. Cornelius' house? I mean, Peter, do you know Cornelius? You know, you know that he's not Jewish, right? You know we're not supposed to go in those. You know that Cornelius is part of the, uh, the Roman army, right? And Peter, we, we shouldn't go in that house. If my mama ever found out I went in Cornelius' house, woo, I'd be in so much trouble. Meanwhile, they're all looking around making sure nobody's checking in on Facebook to their location because they didn't want anybody to know. 
But this crowd's with him. They're standing there. They're with him. Look at what it says. Those who were circumcised had come with Peter were amazed. Why were they so amazed? Because something revolutionary is taking place. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing and hearing them and speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, and here it comes. This is so huge. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now we know this is a revolutionary moment because Peter turns to the other believers and asks the question. This had never happened before. There had never been non-Jews who had come to faith in Christ. And so Peter's looking at him and saying, guys, why shouldn't we baptize them? Why shouldn't they? They've got the same thing we do. The same Jesus died for them like he died for us. The same Holy Spirit that came and, and, and filled us is filling them. What is the difference? And he commanded them. I notice he didn't wait for an answer from this group. I think that's key. They did not form a committee to study this. They just knew this was the right thing to do and they did it. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then they asked him to remain for some days. See, this is so huge. Because God did not limit himself to the circumcised. The Gentiles were being included. If it had not been for Acts chapter 10, most of us sitting here today would not be included in the family of God. But Peter, listen to what God said responded to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and said, you know what? They're part. They're a part of the family. Their baptism indicated that the Gentiles were to be included, that they belonged, that there was no distinction in Christ Jesus, that you belong to him and therefore you belong to us. We belong to one another. Listen to what Paul would later say in Galatians 3, verse 26 through 29. For in Christ... You are all sons. You can add daughters there. You are all sons and daughters of God. How? Through faith. Through faith. Not through your works. Not through your heritage. Not because of the language you speak or the color of your skin or how much money you have. But through faith in Christ. You're all a part of it. For as many of you, here it comes, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Being baptized into Christ means God doesn't look at you and see your past, he looks at you and sees his son Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Now, does that happen because you're baptized? No. No. But baptism is a picture of that. It's a symbol, it's a ceremony of what's happened in you. That you are no longer your own. You belong to the family of God. You are a part of it. Baptism means you belong to a new kind of family. A family not known because of its ethnic heritage, not known because of its socioeconomic status, but because of the common faith it has. A family that isn't marked just by the flesh and what's on the outside, but that's marked by what's on the inside. A branding that can't be seen externally, but a branding that's on the heart. This was God's plan from the very beginning. 
See, it was never about the religious rituals or ceremonies. It was about a changed and transformed heart. It's still the same. That God wants your heart. God wants to change you. And Jesus told his disciples before his crucifixion and before his death, he said, guys, you you need to be marked as mine. People need to look at you and they need to know that you belong to me and that you belong to each other. He said, I'm going to give you a new commandment. He said in John chapter 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, I want you to love one another. To which they all looked at each other and they said, that's not new. Jesus, we know that. See, what they didn't know is that Jesus didn't mean just love the people who are like you. That's what they had always thought. See, he said, Peter, there's going to come a time in a few years where I'm going to send you to a man named Cornelius, who's not only a Gentile, but he's also a part of the Roman military. I want you to love Cornelius. See, See, a new commandment I give you that you're to love one another. And here's how you're to do it. In the same way I have loved you, so you're to love one another. They had no idea what that meant when Jesus said those words because Jesus had yet to die on the cross. But they would see the full extent of Jesus' love when Jesus died on the cross. And they would see branded into his hands and into his feet and into his side. They would see the brand and the mark of his love for them. You know, we think about resurrected bodies and we think there's no more scars and, you know, we'll all be whatever that perfect age is and, and, and our bodies will be perfect. But do you know that the scars of Jesus remained after his resurrection? When he appeared to Thomas, he said, I want you to touch the wounds in my hand. When we get to heaven and we see Jesus, we will see the scars. Why? Because they're a mark of his love for you and for all the world. Jesus said, I want you to love each other like this. By this will all people know that you're my disciples. That you go to church every Sunday. Uh -uh. By this will all people know that you're my disciples. That you give money in the offering plate. That you go to Sunday school. That you read your Bible. By this will all people know that you're my disciples. That you love one another. That you love one another. You see, this experience with Cornelius was so radical. Because Peter said, they're part of our family now. The, the, the same Jesus. They worship the same Jesus. They have the same Holy Spirit. And we belong together. And that's what baptism is a beautiful symbol of. That you become a part of God's family. Therefore, you belong to me and I belong to you. I have loved each and every week watching the videos that we've been showing of real people who are being baptized at the beach next week. I just, I, it excites me to hear their stories and to celebrate with them what God's done. But do you know, it also, it also makes me feel responsible because I'm called to love them like my brothers and like my sisters. And so are you. So, we have this celebration at the beach next Sunday because we're adopting a bunch of people into God's family. It's a mark of what they believe. It's a mark of what they are to become. But it's also a mark that they belong to God and therefore they belong to us. Maybe you're here today and the deepest longing of your heart has always been to belong somewhere. Maybe you come from a broken family and a broken home, and like so many people, you, you used to watch TV and wish you could be a part of the Brady Bunch. 
I remember when I was growing up, it was the Cosby family. And I thought, I wish I could be their white son. Don't we, and maybe for you it's a, it's a sporting event, or maybe it was some event for you when you were, when you were uh, involved in the arts. And, and maybe you were just never good enough to make the team. You could never be a part, you could never belong, but the deepest desire of your heart has always been to belong. The message of the gospel is that you belong. You belong to the family of God. You belong to Christ Jesus. And so the invitation for you is to simply come and and, and say, I believe in Christ. I want to become like him and I want to belong to his family. You can do that. You can do that right where you sit by just praying a prayer, confessing your brokenness before God and accepting Christ as your Savior. I want you to bow your heads with me as we pray and we close. We're going to sing a song of invitation. I'm going to invite you to stand and sing with us. But with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, this morning, if, if you're a believer and you know that Christ is the Lord of your life, I want to challenge you to ask yourself this question. Do you care about and love God's people as much as God would want you to? Do you treat other people with the value that God has placed on them? No matter what they look like, no matter where they're from, No matter what they've done, do you love them enough that people would look at you and say, that person must be a disciple of Jesus Christ because they're branded with his love? If not, why not? And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and for the first time you're hearing the invitation to belong, what's keeping you? Is it fear of what you've done? Listen, God already knows And through Christ, he's already forgiven it. All he's asking you to do is to lay it down and to accept what Christ has done for you, to be adopted as his son and as his daughter. Holy God, we come to you today and we are just so grateful, so grateful that we've been adopted, that we've been included in the family. And Lord, for those who are here today who feel like they're on the outside looking in, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will just speak to their heart and draw them into your family. And Father, that we will all be branded and marked with the love of Christ as we display it to each other and to those who may be still far away from you, but people for whom you died and and on whom you place great value. Lord, we give ourselves to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.